Welcome to Journey to Motherhood, the podcast that has conversations with women who yearn for parenthood and are contemplating or are going through or have gone through so-called unconventional or unspoken of experiences to get there. My desire is that this becomes one of those helpful resources and that the stories of the people who participate will help anyone listening to realize that they are not alone. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Journey to Mother. So far, I've had a number of women join me in studio sharing their stories of journeys to motherhood, predominantly assisted reproduction. And so we've got a great guest today, bringing us more the scientific medical side of it. Lawrence Gorbitz is a doctor at Vitalab. Vitalab? Am I saying it correctly? It's like tomato. Cheryl, it's <laughs> tomato, uh, tomato, 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 tomato. Some people say Vitalab, others say Vitalab. Yeah. So, yeah. So I called it Vitalab for the longest time. And oh. then, um, interestingly enough, a lot of people who've joined us on the podcast have actually been to uh, Vitalab and they call it Vitalab. And so I've changed. Um, but welcome. Welcome, Lawrence. I'm really, really excited to have you. We've been talking more from a felt experience, human experience aspect of this journey. But having shared some of those stories, what I'm finding just with the people I'm sampling the podcast with is people are asking and saying, so what does this mean? What What is this journey about? And medically, what should I be thinking about? And so, you know, I'd really like us to spend time on that. But before we do, because it is a human interest podcast, I want to get to know about you and why you do what you do. Well, I, I qualified as a medical practitioner in 1980, so that's uh, 40 going on almost 41 years ago, and uh, ended up doing my internship at Baraguanath, which was quite taxing in those days. It was still is, I think, the busiest hospital in the Southern Hemisphere, in, or the, the biggest hospital in the Southern Hemisphere. And I knew I was going to do gynecology, so I chose to do, as a houseman, I chose to do six months obstetrics and gynae and six months medicine. So I didn't do a surgical block because my surgical exposure was then when I was doing gynecology. And then I had to go and do my compulsory military service, which was, I was seconded to Burke's Luck, where the potholes are, one of the most beautiful areas in South Africa, uh, on the escarpment overlooking uh, the low felt, freezing in winter, and uh, I spent two years there, and then I said, uh, let's go to general practice, let's feel it out. And uh, after four months of grown-up men sitting in front of me, crying crocodile tears because they needed a letter to book them off work for chronic headaches, I phoned <laughs> the upstairs and gynae department, and I said, you know, the Kempton Chronicle is going to have a story about a doctor who jumped off the Trust Bank building. Uh, do you have a job for me? And uh, fortunately, one of their postgrads had just finished the time, so the post was open. So I went straight into the post, and uh, the rest was history. And then I qualified in 1989 as a gynecologist. And uh, I always had an interest in endocrinology. That's the study of hormones, more so in the female and in the male, for that matter, because we need both. And uh, I was very lucky. So right place, right time. 
uh, end of 89, uh, the IVF was getting off the ground in South Africa and I was approached by the practice to come and join them. And uh, so I'm going now into my 31st year of uh, being a reproductive medicine specialist and it is, uh, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal privilege to do the work that we do to change patients' lives in, in such a positive manner. And uh, I'm very passionate about it, and I think that's what has kept us going. It's a, a young discipline that grows uh, so quickly, and you have to stay on top of it, you know. And uh, we're a very small community internationally. A lot of us know each other. And uh, we're continuously chatting, and especially now with new technology, it's so much easier. You don't have to get on an airplane. Mm. And yes, uh, we built a, we've built a big team. Um, we are 55 staff and five doctors. And I, I would believe that, and I've always said it, is that uh, when we're in medicine, we're actually in the hospitality industry. You, you know, are. we are. Mm-hmm. And uh, our staff understand that too. Because unfortunately, you walk into a practice, there's one single nurse stroke receptionist who's kicking you out because, you know, what are you doing here? Mm. You know, why, why, why are you here? You don't have an appointment, you know. What do you think you're here for? I mean, uh, it's like, you know, it's really in bad taste. And uh, I think that for me, it's so important that the whole team, our team, we cannot do this work as, this, as an individual practitioner. Mm. And you have to have a team and every cog in the wheel is just as important as the other one, you know. Uh, For instance, patients think uh, that we work exceptionally hard because we're seeing them now, then we're stimulating their eggs, then we go and get their eggs out, then they think we're sitting in the lab doing all the cookery and <laughs> and, and, and make, baking the bread in the lab when, when we have highly specialized embryologists, you know, who do that work. Oh, wow. And then the next thing is five days later, we're down in the theater and we pop the embryos back. At the meantime, we haven't really played much of a role in the laboratory. We do in the background, you know, mm. and we understand how to troubleshoot and, and, and we do guide the embryologists. But... So we have nursing staff, we have assistants, we have embryologists, we have program coordinators. And uh, at the end of the day, I say that what keeps me in it uh, is the passion for the positive outcome in your patients. Mm. And, and, and also, you know, for me, what's also been important is you, you have 90% of the population that don't need help. And then you've got 10% who have difficulty, and we probably don't see more than about a half or 1% of that 10%. And despite that, we are run off our feet, you know. And uh, from, from the number of people that you come into contact with and the different people that you come into contact with, uh, everyone has one reason they're there, and that mm. is to form their family unit when they are having immense difficulty doing it on their own, you know, and... It isolates them and it creates major issues. And it what's does. important for us is, is to make sure that that journey is so positive that even though they walk away with a negative result, they still had an amazing experience. So the work that I do entails not only clinical work. We have a lot of science. We have to keep up with it. But we have a lot of psychology. And uh, that's one of the things that also keeps me going. It's so diverse and, and, and uh, you know, it's not just one thing where you go in, you pop a pimple and the patient's happy because the pain's gone and they leave your office. It's such a deeply personal experience. And, and I mean, when I was going through it, I felt you'd walk into re- this reception area 
at six in the morning and, and we must talk about why we have to be there at like <laughs> the crack ass of dawn. <laughs> Sorry for the language, but you know, Lawrence, but, but you'd walk in and, and you're feeling very alone. And then you walk into this reception area and it is packed. But in as much as it's packed, when you're engaging with each of the nursing staff, with each of the doctors, you're feeling like this is about you. I, I always felt so supported. I felt, I felt like everyone had a vested interest in me falling pregnant and starting my family. It was the best experience I could have had going through such a terrible experience. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's why I, I come back and I say that, you know, you, you can do any kind of medicine as a straightforward cookie cutter, one size fits all, you know, versus you can say, hang on, I need to individualize this because mm. not every patient's the same. Mm. As far as how you manage the patient emotionally, psychologically, that's invariably very much the same. And I think if your staff are not in tune to that, the patient is going to feel like, you know, she's on a conveyor belt or he's on a conveyor belt. And, you know, but my, my neighbor got exactly the same treatment and mm. we're still all not pregnant, you know. Mm. So you have to, you have to individualize. You have to see each patient as its own entity with its own set of problems that you can't just go via the textbook and the textbook says this is how you start out and if this doesn't work then you move on to that and if mm. that doesn't work then you move on to IVF and if that doesn't work you say goodbye have a nice day yeah it doesn't work like that you know each patient's different mm. so let's talk a little bit about how it does work right and I think what's useful is just to make sure we're all on the same page so, so what is infertility so it's defined as the the inability to achieve a pregnancy in under one year. Now, it translates then into be able to understand, well, well, if a young couple sets out to fall pregnant, how quickly should they be pregnant? Now, statistics show us that a good 86% are pregnant within the first six months, mm. provided there are no problems like, well, if the patient, the female's not having periods, she's not going to wait six months. You know, she knows there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the male had undescended testicles. They know there's a problem. So they need to go straight away. Um, but if everything seems fine and there's nothing significant in the history, 86% are pregnant in the first six months. Then you move on to the next six months, which are very small percentage. So if we go from 86 to 90% in a year, there's not many more that actually conceive in the second six months. So, you know, without getting the patients to worry, they need to know that if they pass six months and nothing's really happened, they should maybe start getting the system checked out. Now, what's interesting is we classify that in relation to the female age. Okay. Because this is the biggest issue, and it's the biggest issue that faces us nowadays, and that is that young women go to university, put their marriage on hold, they go and get their careers established. They then get into the workplace. They then put some money in the bank. And then they find Mr. Wright, who after five years is not quite Mr. Wright. Mm -hmm. And then the next Mr. Wright arrives. And now the average age of your female is 38, 39. And the important issue for everybody out there to understand is there's a major difference between sperm production within the testicle and egg production within the ovary. The testicle, we have stem cells, and every day we make new stem cells, 
and every day after puberty, a testicle will make somewhere between 100 million and 200 million new sperm a day. Wow. Okay. Now so they don't age. They don't age. And, and uh, when you bury that man, probably for the first six hours, if there's still a reasonable amount of oxygen in the <laughs> testicle, it's still making sperm. So Don't give me ideas. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that is very different. So, yes, there's wow. certain aspects of, of the elderly father, which is not, I mean, you know, is the incidence of genetically abnormal babies is slightly higher, but not very significant. But now we get to the ovary, and the ovary is a very interesting organ. And in my almost 31 years of looking back at this ovary and trying to understand it, when you are as a female fetus in your mother's womb, you get a basket of eggs and you have 6 million eggs. And we know this from fetal studies. So at five months pregnancy in the womb as a fetus, your ovaries get their total basket of 6 million. And everyone has 6 million? Everybody. Okay. Now you're born as a fetus, let's say 38, 39 weeks, you're now chronologically day zero, which is pretty easy because in South Africa we look at your ID number, okay, and we know how old you are, and uh, and it's your birthday today. So happy birthday, <laughs> happy birthday, you. Cheryl! Many, many more. May the year ahead be a, a phenomenal one for you. Hey? Thank you. Um, so at birth we've gone from six million in the basket to one million, and now we get to puberty, average age twelve, we're down to three hundred, three hundred and fifty thousand eggs. So the eggs are we call it apoptosis, which is genetic programmed cell death. Now, uh, when the father's sperm enters the mother's egg to achieve that fetus and pregnancy, the woman is given a genetic age, which is the egg age. And the chronological age, as I said, is linked to your ID. So your egg age has been predetermined. Now, how quickly you lose your basket of eggs is a genetic aging so we get some women who will lose their eggs at a standard rate and will still remain fertile in an older age group. But those ovaries are made to give you children somewhere between 16 and 26, 28 years old at the most. Wow. And then after that, what is happening is those eggs in your ovaries are aging and they get older, they make more abnormal embryos, which have very low chances of implanting. And we start to have a higher miscarriage rate because nature's now selecting out the stronger ones from the weaker ones. So that is why we say that if a female is over 35 and has not achieved a pregnancy in six months, don't wait any longer. But if you're 22 or 23, you can wait out the year, mm. provided there are no problems. As I say, like no periods or, you know, maybe yeah. she's had pelvic surgery and we would expect maybe there's damage in her pelvis. So... Female age and ovaries is a massive issue. And I think that we've got to a stage now because we can freeze eggs so robustly. We should be, and, and gynecologists should, the minute they get young women coming in for contraceptive advice, the first thing they should be doing is checking the egg reserve. Doing an ultrasound, mm. looking at what the ovaries look like and see is the, are these young, healthy ovaries with lots of little eggs in them? Or are these ovaries that look a lot older than what the chronology of the patient is? Because that woman can put her eggs in the freezer. She can be 26 years old. She can find Mr. Wright at 40 and come back and use her frozen eggs that she put away at age 26 and give her the same chance of a pregnancy as if she was 26. 26. 
The next interesting thing for me about the ovary is that I strongly believe that the ovary, it hasn't evolved like we have. The ovary doesn't know we've got smartphones. Mm. We're now talking 5G. You know, we build bridges. It doesn't yeah. know that. And, and your ovary knew or still knows that we should be dead by 40. So if you go and look at graveyards adjacent to churches, 1700s, 1800s, you look at the headstones, everyone was dead by 40. Mm -hmm. So I think the ovary does, in a way, as the woman gets older, become the woman's own contraception. Because mm. the ovary knows that you shouldn't be having children much later. But interestingly, pregnancy itself is, I believe, a genetic switch. Because women will come to us at 47 and say, but doc, my neighbor's 47 and she's on her ninth child. Why can't you help me? Mm. So if you start off very early and you keep successively getting pregnant, when you're in your mid to late 40s, you probably will still fall pregnant naturally. And but that's what happened to, to our mothers, right? A yeah. lot of us have these luck lamakis in our families. And because they had quite a few children, mm. which was the protective mechanism. So if a woman has never conceived and she wants to start for the first time at 40, her chances are actually very low. Mm -hmm. And today our 40-year-olds look and feel like our 20-year-olds 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And they look at themselves in the mirror and they say, well, there's nothing wrong with me. Look at me, you know. And I'm healthy. And they're healthy. And, and, and I think one of the other problems is they go to their gynae for their pap smears and they ask the gynecologist, you know, can I still have a baby? And the gynecologists, I don't think they're where they should be with regards to being able to understand that if you're a female and you're 40 and you've never conceived before, you, you don't tell that woman you've still got another good five years mm. till 45. That's wrong, you know. And uh, so I think we need to educate our gynecologists at many levels. One level is when you get young girls for contraceptive advice, look at the egg reserve. And if the egg reserve is low, allow them the opportunity to go to a fertility unit and discuss the options of putting her eggs in the freezer and preserving her potential. Because the egg's frozen at 16 or 18 or 20, when she comes back at 40, her same chances are going to be equal to what they were at the age that she froze yeah. her eggs. So contraceptive advice today should go hand in hand with egg number and potential and maybe then consult for egg freezing and not to take our 41, 42-year-olds, do a scan and a pap smear and say you've still got another good three or four years till you get to 45. It's yeah. absolutely wrong. I agree. I mean, my journey started with me thinking of freezing my eggs. I was about 34. And if I hadn't actually been very specific about the fact that I want to freeze my eggs and therefore we started looking at my eggs – I would never have known. I would have just been on this journey of one day I'll meet Mr. Wright, we'll have kids, I'm sure it'll be okay because I feel like I did a 20. I don't look like I did a 20, but I feel like I did a 20. I'm, I'm in my early 40s, right? And if I look around at my friends, so about a third of us are married, got married, have done the whole traditional, gone the traditional route. Um, probably about another third we're lucky enough or unlucky enough, but I think lucky enough in retrospect to, <laughs> to fall pregnant uh, along the way. But there's a good 30 to 40 percent of us who, you know, find ourselves in our 40s and don't have children. But believe that we will still meet Mr. Wright or at some point we will have children. Is it a pipe dream? It, it's our biggest problem today um, because on the one hand, 
you know, these patients look at us as IVF doctors being the answer to their prayers. And uh, IVF was originally put together for young women with blocked tubes, and then it started to work. So we started to use it for young women with open tubes. And then eventually that subgroup of the population disappeared. And then we started to treat the reproductively older female. And females don't really worry because they think they have this impression that, you know what, if I'm 45 and I'm having difficulty, I'll just go to the IVF doctor. Mm. And the problem for us is that when we start to work artificially outside the body, the minute the patient gets past 42, the likelihood that we're going to establish a pregnancy with our own eggs is very small. And even between 40 and 42, in other words, if we compare the implantation rate of an embryo from a 40-year-old egg, even though the embryo is normal genetically, it has a much lower implantation potential than an embryo from a 28-year-old female egg. So at the end of the day, this myth that I don't need to worry and when I meet Mr. Wright, I'll fall pregnant. If you're in your 40s and you've never been pregnant before, the likelihood that you'll fall pregnant naturally is very slim. And if you do, it's probably more a miracle than, uh, you know. So you cannot think that because you're in your mm. mid-40s that you have the same potential as when you're in your 20s. You don't. But I'm working out. I'm eating healthy. It means nothing. It means nothing. Remember what, remember what I said. Your ovary <laughs> is a lot smarter than us. It doesn't know we build bridges. It doesn't know we're onto 5G yeah. and smartphones. And it dies off before 40. So what is dying off is your actual age of your eggs getting much older, your potential, those eggs are going to just give you abnormal embryos which have no chance of implanting. So it's another thing is that we, a woman arrives at 42 wanting to put her eggs in the freezer. That's the wrong person to put eggs in the freezer. Mm. You want to try and get your eggs in the freezer, preferably when you're under 35, if preferably even under 32, mm. to give you a better chance when you're in your mid-40s. So we often are ending up counseling these young girls, 45, don't put your eggs in the freezer, you're doing the wrong thing, you're going to waste a lot of money. You have to understand that it's either going to be donor eggs or it'll be acceptance or it'll be adoption because the age of the womb does not deteriorate like the ovary. Mm. And yes, when you get older, there's a higher risk. It maybe you've got fibroids, maybe you develop a condition called adenomyosis. We can treat that medically Sometimes the fibroids need to be treated surgically, but then you still need to rely on donor eggs unless you were fortunate to have put your eggs in the freezer. But as I said previously, prior to 2013, if you put eggs in the freezer, I would not hold my breath on those eggs being able to give you a a viable pregnancy. You'll be lucky if they do. Wow. Okay. And secondary infertility. So I've had my first child. Now we're trying for a second, but I'm in my 40s. Should I be thinking about it in the same way that you mentioned earlier? So if we've tried for six months and it hasn't worked, we should be coming to a fertility doctor. Yes, but also realize that you're going to possibly get bad news. And okay. that and that is our biggest issue. You know, uh, again, when you're 38 and you've never been pregnant and you get help and we assist and we achieve a pregnancy, mm. There's probably a very small chance if you come back two or three years later, unless we have embryos in the store from that first treatment cycle. Mm. So we do have today more one treatment cycle families where at 38 we get you pregnant 
and you've got two or three embryos in the freezer from that cycle of treatment and you come back at 42 and we put those embryos back into you. Mm. So there you would have the same potential. But if you're now 42 or 43 and we have to go and stimulate you again and work with your eggs in the laboratory, our chances of achieving a pregnancy are much lower than what they were at the time that we got you pregnant when you were 38. So you need to, when you go and see a fertility specialist, you need to think in terms of short-term, get pregnant now, what's my medium term? Mm -hmm. So we are tending to do embryo accumulation in the reproductively older woman. So put your embryos away because our freezing technology is so robust. Okay. So accumulate embryos and then go and get pregnant and at least have a store that you can rely on when you're 43 or 44. Mm. So embryo accumulation is, is one of the new buzzwords. Okay. No, that's that's very interesting. I think that's that's something we don't think about. Mm-hmm. We just assume that because we look healthy and we are healthy, that we will be okay. We are, and we we super healthy today. If we compare what we were, you know, I, I remember my that my mother at forty was ancient, mm. you know, <laughs> and, and and she now bless her soul is eighty nine and mm. she's still solid, you know. We had yeah. to take her keys away and stop her from driving because. <laughs> <laughs> She's a danger on the road. But I want to be that, that old woman. I really do. Okay. <laughs> but now I need to ask you a few maybe un-PC questions, but that come to mind as you were talking. So the first one is maybe my 16-year-old or 18-year-old um, decides, okay, mom, I am sexually active. I take her to the gynae. We have a conversation. Would it still be fine for her to freeze her eggs? Maybe my question is, is there an, a stage where it's too early? Yeah, that's a very good question. And, uh, you know, we run a, a very effective donor egg program um, and we freeze eggs. Um, we come back to freezing, which I think is also important. Um, but so we freeze eggs uh, for older recipients. And uh, our frozen egg pregnancy rates are, are very similar to fresh pregnancy rates, fresh eggs. But what we do find is that the younger donors, and we don't think that a donor could make that decision to freeze her own eggs if uh, she was under 18. Mm. And number two, we find that the younger girls still, the eggs haven't quite got to a maturity rate that gives us the pregnancy rates. I'm talking now in an IVF facility. Mm. I'm not talking spontaneous. There's a big difference between patients conceiving naturally versus us now stimulating, pushing the boundaries of physiology, taking eggs out and working with them in a laboratory. Mm-hmm. There we would prefer at least 22. Okay. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. But that woman has a very high risk of conceiving at 16 if she's in the back of her father's Volkswagen at the Feldskund Drive. Okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> we um, know this, so, right? we, so what we've got to be aware of is that we must not compare natural potential to what happens when we work in the laboratory. It is a bit different. And okay, most of us, I'll speak for myself, in my 20s, half my life, at least my sexual life, was about, am I taking the pill? Am I taking the morning after pill? (laughs) I mean, I'm being honest, right? (laughs) A lot of women listening to this will resonate with that. What damage did I do to my eggs? Nothing. We use the pill Firstly, just to program our patients when they're on an IVF program. Mm. You know, patients think that if I'm on the pill, I'm actually conserving my eggs, which is wrong. Yes. It's wrong. So, 
if I just go back and say what happens once you get to puberty is somewhere, and we don't know exactly the numbers, but just to give you a rough estimate, somewhere between 100 and 1,000 eggs enter a race. And your body, because it's made for one baby, one egg runs ahead and wins the race, and the other 1,000 die off. That's the apoptosis or genetic program cell death. Mm. And that is why you started with 6 million as a 20-week fetus, down to 1 million at birth, down to 300,000 at puberty. And then you're going all the way down to maybe about 10,000 old real stock oat eggs in your ovaries (laughs) at 50, and that's why you go into the menopause. Mm. So at the end of the day, by being on the pill, all the pill does is stop that one egg from growing to dominance. So you don't ovulate. But the pill does not stop the race. So every month you still lose eggs. And it's the same that when you're pregnant for nine months, you don't menstruate. What if I'm not menstruating? Then maybe I'm accumulating my eggs. You're not. In the background, that race carries on every single month. Those eggs are programmed to die. Okay. So even when you don't have a period, Mm. your eggs are dying. Absolutely. And that's quite interesting and, and, and I think an important one to note because subconsciously we're either thinking either we're damaging our chances of falling pregnant or we're delaying our chance of falling pregnant. And I mean, I've often had conversations with people where it's like, oh, we're struggling, but you know, I was on the pill, so we'll give it a couple of years. And that's where the, the error comes in because one thinks that having been on the pill for 20 years, my egg should now be really good and solid yes. because they've been in a resting phase for 20 years because I've been on the pill. They have not. They have not. And those eggs have aged while you've been on the pill and your potential goes down because of your egg age, not because you've been on the pill, which is classic because patients being on the pill for 20 years stop the pill. They're 39 years old now and they can't fall pregnant. Mm. And the the granny will say, you see, I told you, you shouldn't have gone on that stuff. Look what it's done yes. to you. In the meantime, it's done nothing to them. What's the problem is they've waited until they're 39 to try and have a baby. Mm. So their natural potential has declined purely because of the age of the ovaries and not because they were on the pull. Mm. Okay, that makes that makes sense. That helps to clarify something. Now, let's talk about the different options with regards to assisted reproduction. Uh, and I almost think of it as, as a staircase. So like I said, in my first kind of introduction to it was, oh, let me freeze my eggs, you know. And I think most people have at least been exposed to egg freezing. Could you take us through the different things to think about with regards to assisted reproduction? Okay. I just want to highlight one thing on egg freezing and that if we really look at the history of egg freezing, um, we could probably only robustly freeze eggs where we would get positive results when we warm the eggs and use those eggs from about 2013-2014. And again, true to form in the discipline, quite a few years ago they already started to advocate egg freezing and putting eggs in the freezer when they would have got no pregnancies with those eggs because we didn't yet have the right recipe. Okay. And it was seen, you know, I want to freeze my eggs, so the unit would freeze the eggs and put them away. And then when the patient came 10 years later to use the eggs, all the eggs were dead because the recipe wasn't right. And unfortunately, again, this is what I try and highlight to patients, do your homework, do your reading. And uh, one of the things that we did at Vitalab was we waited until we got results with our frozen eggs for our egg donor program. And when that came through for us, then we said, right, now we're happy to freeze eggs for fertility preservation, 
for young women who are not going to want to settle down until they're much older or to put eggs in the freezer for fertility preservation, for onco-fertility, for young girls who've got some form of cancer, need chemotherapy, put the eggs in the freezer. At least mm. we know that if you come and freeze your eggs at Vitalab, you're going to have a good chance of establishing a pregnancy with those eggs. So again, it comes to looking at statistics. So if we look at a couple and they've been trying for at least three years, nothing has happened. If you put them on the graph of what their own potential would be if they were left alone, less than 1%. Okay, so three years now, nothing's happened. What are their natural potential rates? Less than 1%. Now they come to a fertility unit and we look them over and the three areas that we would really concentrate on are the eggs. By scanning and looking at the egg number, Mm -hmm. you can't see egg quality on an ultrasound. You may be able to determine egg quality purely retrospectively in relation to the age of the female, Mm -hmm. but you still get some older women who still have reasonable egg quality. But it gives you a rough idea. Then you look at sperm. Uh, There's only one thing that tells me that sperm is good. Yeah, you've got a whole lot of parameters on a piece of paper that say to us, for all intended purposes, this sperm should be able to achieve an embryo. There's only one thing that says the sperm is good, and that's a positive pregnancy test. And it's it's the same for our women out there, Mm -hmm. that there's only one thing that says you did ovulate, not by weighing on a stick and seeing an LH positive test or doing your progesterone level. There's only one thing that says you did ovulate. That's a positive pregnancy test, nothing else. Mm. Because there's a whole lot of mechanisms that take place that we can't measure or see. And then the last thing is the female pathway. So if there are factors, let's say there's a problem in her uterus that's causing her problem of not falling pregnant, that needs to be fixed. Like fibroids. Fibroids, polyps, which are benign growth from the lining. Not all fibroids prevent pregnancy. Fibroids very close to the cavity or in the cavity will. Um, and yes, we see fibroids very commonly more so in Africa. And it's a very interesting topic, but not for mm. today, but uh, another time. So now we get along and we say, okay, I've evaluated this couple. She's 38 years old. He's got really good sperm and her pathway is completely normal. Now, the next thing is that the gynecologist will move to the next step, which is Clomid, all right, to try and stimulate ovulation. Now, interestingly, that egg that we're going to stimulate today with a drug was getting ready in that patient's body five months ago. So the Clomid is not necessarily going to give you a better egg. And it's only really going to work if the patient's not ovulating, provided she responds to the drug. But most of these patients are ovulating. and Most of the sperm that we look at is very good quality sperm. So what is the next step? We, let's do artificial insemination. Mm-hmm. And I always say, if that man can deposit that sperm in the right place, mid-cycle, artificial insemination is not going to give you a better pregnancy rate. Mm. And if we do do it and we flick it, then great. It's, that's not science. Okay. Wait, wait, you need to pause. <laughs> you said if that man can deposit the sperm in the right place. Yes. So is there a So if there's intercourse. There's, there's, so it's okay. So it's not just that there is a particular part of the vagina that's. No, okay, no, right, no, no, okay, no, 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 I was going no. to. I was going no. to. Like my mind was blowing. I was like, okay, wait. <laughs> this thing no, no. So in other words, if, if let's be more specific, if, okay. if, if normal intercourse can take <laughs> okay, place right. and the man is depositing a normal ejaculate in the vagina, and the woman is having regular menstrual cycles, 
by doing IUI or intrauterine insemination in that patient is not going to move that needle much more. Much more. more. Okay. okay. So why waste four cycles? All right. And an IUI cycle will cost somewhere between seven and a half and 10,000 rand. Mm. So now we're down the tubes by 40 grand. When by right, that couple is unexplained. We can give them a much higher pregnancy rate, a seven to 10 fold better chance. Okay, if we go to IVF, mm-hmm. and IVF will take, con- uh, you'll get the eggs out, so you'll know. Here I have the eggs, mm-hmm. sperm and eggs together. You'll see that this couple can make embryos, and then the embryos have got to grow on to day five, and then you will then choose your two best or one best embryo. We're moving more and more now to single elective single embryo transfer to reduce the incidence of twins. But <laughs> interestingly, <laughs> interestingly, and over the last quite a few years now we've been able to biopsy these embryos and we oh, are yeah. seeing on embryos the grossest abnormalities in the genetics of those embryos which we believe is occurring every month in young couples and that's why most cycles one doesn't fall pregnant because the quality of the embryo that's formed naturally within the body is so grossly abnormal There's that, no, they that don't you, implant you have, it, it just comes away yeah. at your period you know so, and people think that when I'm having a period, that's the egg coming out. The egg doesn't last more than eight to 12 hours, maybe 24 hours at the most. So every month, if you're ovulating and there's no sperm with that egg, that egg just disappears in your body. It doesn't come out with your period. Mm. But that's what the layperson understands. Mm, yes. And that's what the granny often teaches you, you know, yes. when you have your sex lessons from your granny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. I, 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 sorry, my mind works in, in like it goes, it goes far. But anyway, we, we will, we, let's, let's focus, let's focus. So, so again, we, we use that guideline to say, you've tried so many years, everything looks normal. So what's the next step? Clomid and IUI? No, IVF. So with IVF, we can read the ovary and understand how many eggs we will be able to ripen with our medication. And it takes about 10 or 11 days to ripen those eggs. Two days later, we take the patient into our IVF suite, which is a a procedure room adjacent to the laboratory. We give the patient conscious sedation. She doesn't feel any discomfort. Seven mm. to ten minutes later, she's back in the ward with a sticker on her hand telling her how many eggs she's got. Mm. And then the male will produce his specimen, and then the lab will do their magic where they'll put the sperm and eggs together. Now, there are various different qualities of sperm. So fortunately today, for, for quite severe male factor, we have a process called ICSI intracytoplasmic sperm injection where we can pick up a single good-looking sperm with a glass needle 14 times thinner than a human hair and actually put the sperm into the egg. So prior to 94, those males we couldn't help because ICSI only got off the ground in 94. Um, Those males had to go with donor sperm. Um, Today it's completely different. So what we do in the lab and we say IVF, in vitro fertilization, means fertilizing in the laboratory there are two ways to achieve fertilization. One, when the sperm is really good, you put a concentration of sperm in the environment of the egg and let the sperm get into the egg on their own. Mm-hmm. And other times where the sperm can't jump through all the hula hoops and do what you want it to do, we then just do ICSI. So ICSI is a form of IVF, mm-hmm. but it's a separate entity where, as I say, we individually put a sperm into an egg. It doesn't make a better embryo. It just gives you fertilization invariably 
in that patient who, if you had to do routine IVF, you may phone them the next day and say, I'm sorry, none, none of the eggs fertilised. Mm. So that did happen prior to 94 because the couples were didn't want donor sperm. Mm. And if that was the case, you would have to give it a bash, you know, and there was a high high failed fertilization rate. Mm. Um, so that has changed because patients always say, well, what's the biggest changes thus far, you know, <laughs> over the last 10 years in, in IVF? So again, the, the whole concept is we are the problems. Try and sort out the problems because the problems may just be a small thing impacting on their natural potential and you'll then give them another four to six months depending on the age of the female versus if the woman's over 35 and, and, and where we lose sight of this is that Patients don't think about the medium term. They're just worried, now. I want a baby, I want to take home a baby, yes. I want to phone my, my parentals and tell them my pregnancy yes. test is positive and <laughs> get the first scan to them via WhatsApp now. And But the problem is, what about your medium term plan? So in other words, the longer you waste time now in our reproductively older females, the less likely they will be able to fall pregnant naturally because now they're 40 for their second pregnancy. So a female yeah, age missed, female yeah. age is very important in trying to plan how do you do it now. Some patients say, listen, I only want one child. That's all I want today, mm. you know, and we do have smaller families nowadays, but most people want at least two children and therefore don't mess around when you're 38 and you still haven't fallen pregnant. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think one of the challenges is the stigma. So, so it feels on the more positive side, like you're cheating, like you're cheating the system, you're cheating biology by looking for medical help to fall pregnant. And probably on the other extreme, it almost feels like you spiritually and culturally, like this this shouldn't happen. It, will you have normal children? Will there be something wrong with your children? And do you find your patients coming to talk to you about that aspect of this journey? Yeah, you have your patients who believe that they're being punished. They did something bad in a previous life. Mm. Um, perhaps they had evil thoughts of their late great-grandmother twice removed and all these things, you know. <laughs> and I, I think, Cheryl, that for me comes from one issue, and mm. that is loss of control. Yeah, We, we live in an, in an era now where everyone can control anything. I can set my alarm on my cell phone while I'm sitting in Clarence. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can get my lights on and off while I'm in Cape Town and my home's in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. So when you have difficulty conceiving and everyone around you is conceiving, you've just lost control. So now being a human being, I need to put that control back. Mm. So some people will control it by saying, I've been punished. I'm being told by God not to have a child. And if I do have a child, you know what? That child's going to be abnormal. So not, let's not even tempt fate, mm-hmm. you know. But again, that's all part of control. And the minute I, we have that, that patient needs to see our counsellor. Because, you know, I, I'm a fertility specialist. I, having been in it for a long time, I'm a psychologist as well. But <laughs> I, I try and reserve my time to look after the patient from a fertility point of view and also then identify who I think will need counselling or not. Mm. So, again, it's all control. These are the patients that will go through all the issues. I shouldn't be having more than two cups of coffee. I Maybe I'm drinking too much red mm. wine. Uh, and you go to the 90% of the population that don't, that don't have a problem falling pregnant. They don't do all of that. They don't do it. They don't, them. They, of course. <laughs> yeah, so they had cocaine parties. Yeah. They, they drank, they, you know, and none of them are taking control over the element. So, so it's purely that 10%. Mm. 
Mm. And they will read and Google whatever they can how to improve the outcome. There are books and books of fit for fertility diets, mm. how to get your body ready for a yes. baby and all this kind of stuff, again, as I say, of which the 90% of the population never even look at. Mm. It, it really is. And, and look, the reality is when you're going through it, you, you do, you feel so completely out of control. And, you know, I, I was very fortunate uh, in the sense that I, I, my, my issue was I didn't have a man to have the child with. And, you know, but when I've engaged with people, what I find is, you know, there's this sense of hopelessness. Because even when you're going through it, that final switch is a higher power or is something that's completely out of anyone's control. And, and the more you go through it, the more you feel like, maybe I'm just not meant to be a parent. Maybe I made, yeah, maybe it's a past life problem. <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe I drink too much. Maybe I'm overweight. Maybe I'm too skinny. You know, um, I had uh, someone I know who went for acupuncture. You know, I've had people who go on these crazy diets because it will help. We've been told to take certain medication or certain vitamins that help. And certainly, I think if it helps you get a sense of control, that's fine. But yeah, I want to ask the question around what you see with regards to different races coming for fertility treatment. Uh, because I do think when you look from the outside in, you assume that this is a white thing to do. As black people, we, we one, if you have a fertility issue, it's not talked about. You know, or if it is, it's in hushed tones and most more often than not ends up in divorce or someone looks for a child outside of the family or with women, you have an affair and you bring this child back into the home and you pretend that it's your husband's. Do you find that there are black couples coming? Yeah, so I think the, the important thing is if you if you go back, I would say 25, 30 years ago, um, culturally, it was not that acceptable amongst our black population to seek help. Um, today, if you come and sit in our waiting rooms, you will spot white people, if you're lucky. Yeah. You will only see people of color in our mm. waiting room. And uh, it's a completely changed atmosphere now where previously for the male in our black culture, male fertility and virility go hand in hand. So mm. the male feels that if he has a very weak sperm count, he won't be able to be virile. And they've come now to a level where they understand that, you know, it, it, the two don't really hold water. In other words, your virility is not determined by your sperm count. Mm. And males are coming through and understanding that they have a sperm problem and they can get help now. So that, that profile's changed completely. So, no, and, and I think the, the, the myth, or I always say the misconception, mm. is that when you're within a population which is far larger, you think, well, how can they have a problem with fertility? Yes. But 10% but of that population has the same incidence of fertility irrespective of race, color, or creed. Mm. But it seems that, hang on, but there's so many more so therefore, there can't be a fertility problem, yeah. which is absolutely wrong, you know. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with race group, color, creed, religion. And we are faced with day-to-day -day issues like perhaps if we've got a Muslim couple where the male doesn't have sperm, they are, it's absolutely not, it's against the religion to use donor gametes. Oh. Okay, so we are faced with those issues and how do you counsel them then you've got 
Jehovah's Witnesses who need surgery, who need surgery that's going to bleed and they, they won't accept blood. Now, how do we manage them? Can we manage them medically, try and stay out of trouble, you mm. know, rather than try and get out of trouble? <laughs> then you've got your very religious Jewish couples where things have to be done very strictly. So uh, within the laboratory, we have people who come in and watch the lab, working with the eggs and sperm to make sure nothing is mixed up, which it doesn't, but it's just part and parcel of that religion. Oh. And the, the person will then seal the incubator, and the embryologist can only open the incubator the following morning when the watcher is in the laboratory. So the, the so couple actually sends someone? The couple sends somebody. Oh. Um, so we have various different religious aspects that we deal with on a day-to-day mm. -day basis, um, which you have to know all these things. And, you know, and it may not be your own religion, and yet mm. you've got to be aware of it and you've got to be sensitive to the couple's needs. So, yeah, we deal with that every day. What's the prevalence of the use of, I think donor sperm seems to be more uh, widely understood, donor eggs. What's the prevalence of use of donor eggs? Uh, donor egg uh, treatment cycles are on the increase because of women delaying their childbearing, mm. getting to a stage where they have no more functional eggs or eggs that are able to give them normal embryos. So that is going up dramatically. If we compare it to donor sperm per se, probably you're looking at a half to 1% of the male population not having sperm, but we have now been able to get directly into the testicle and get sperm out of the testicle. So there are reasons for why there's no sperm in the ejaculate, but they may still have sperm within the testicle. Oh. And we're able to do a very small surgical procedure purely because of the advent of ICSI. Mm. So we don't need many sperm anymore. You just we, need one. We just need a sperm per egg. So sometimes mm. if we've got 10 eggs, we may have a lot more sperm than we need. We don't have enough sperm to do IVF, but we can do ICSI. So we have now, and I mean, if we look at it internationally, quite a few million babies born to ICSI. And uh, we were involved in the very early days of, of R&D, of the process. And yes, mm. we were worried because we were bypassing natural selection. And uh, were we going to end up making this abnormal population? Mm. And uh, it's quite an interesting story of how we ultimately got to the final step of actually plunging the needle into the egg. Um, that's, again, for another discussion. Okay. <laughs> you see, you're calling us but. for a second discussion. We, we have to have one. So um, if we've opened up a, a treatment group for, for very severe male factor, you know, where these guys would have had to use donor sperm. They don't have to anymore. Donor eggs are different because I can't go into the ovaries and get better eggs out. Mm. Your egg store is your egg store. You had so many eggs in the basket, and depending on your age, you've got so many eggs left in the basket, and you need to know that those eggs don't function normally again in the laboratory. And that's where patients lose sight of the fact that but I've got eggs, Doc. Why can't I have a baby? Mm. So we're having more and more reproductively older women coming forward, and for them probably the best option is donor eggs. Okay. And are there a lot of people donating eggs? Yeah. We Firstly, we work on, on people applying to become a, a donor. Mm. Um, we, we have a computer program, get them to fill in a profile. 
They'll then be screened out by us. We will not just take anybody off the street for egg donation. Mm. They need to satisfy criteria in relation to the age, what the ovaries look like. They have to have a good egg store. They have to be free of sexually transmitted diseases. We test them for drugs. So it's a very strict selection. And we may have 500, 700 applications in a month where only maybe 15 are appropriate. Wow. So there's a very strict selection criteria. And then we run it either with frozen eggs in the bank or we can run the donor as a fresh cycle in relation to the recipient, line them up. Prior to COVID, we were putting lots of eggs in the freezer. Then COVID came along and now we were sitting between, uh, do we bring these young people in who may be at risk for bringing COVID into the unit? We had Mm. to keep the unit COVID free. So we stopped putting eggs in the freezer for a few months and now we're back on it again. So we slowly now are building our store up again. Um, So yeah, we had to be sensitive to COVID. So that's uh, one of the non-silver linings of COVID Mm. for us. And donor embryos. Yeah. What happens there? What what? I want to ask the psychology, and I know you're not a psychologist, but I also I'm very curious about donating an embryo. What are the circumstances under which you see it happening uh, on both parties? Because I'm assuming you're involved, and if you've got one or two stories to share, if you're comfortable, mm, because mm. it 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 does seem probably quite far out for a lot of people to think about. You know, these are often people who've exhausted all avenues. In other words, hold it, there's really very poor sperm quality or no sperm. Um, the female has a really poor egg quality. And at the end of the day, they've been the root. They've come to a level of accepting and understanding that, well, I, I can't get pregnant with my own eggs. I can't get pregnant with my husband's sperm. And more and more today, because we are ending up with better quality embryos because the lab facility has changed and our understanding of what embryos require in the lab, you end up with a surplus of embryos. Mm. Now, a lot of people will say, "Uh uh-uh, those embryos are going nowhere. You warm them, you let them, they they just burn out. You don't Mm. see them. An embryo is a microscopic organ, you know. And again, it just depends on, on one's thought process of when does life begin? Yes. Okay. Does it begin at a heart rate, a heartbeat? Um, is it at conception? And I mean, there's the various different religious mm. aspects that will determine when does life begin. But we have patients who are very willing to donate their surplus embryos because they now have two or three kids and they still got five embryos in the freezer. Mm. Um, I had a patient not so long ago who had 10 years of backwards and forwards in different uh, fertility units and arrived for an opinion. And she really had a very bad uterus from adenomyosis point of view. It's a kind of endometriosis that infiltrates the wall of the womb. And uh, they were burnt out from eggs and and sperm point of view. There was Mm. was nothing. I mean, their their only option was donor embryos. Mm. And there was one, and it was a specific race group, so you were also Mm. restricted by, you know. (laughs) So at the end of the day, we had one. Mm. We put it back, and she's now about 16 weeks pregnant because we treated the environment correctly we medically shrunk down the disease we put this one solitary donor embryo we didn't know whether it was genetic or normal and now she has a healthy ongoing pregnancy now that couple is over the moon Mm. because it's not where does the dna come from it's the fact that i am going to have a child yes and i think that we are learning more and more now about what we call our epigenome so our genomes our dna mm. but our dna is altered daily by our epigenome and that's a structure with, around which our dna is coiled very tightly 
So there's constant uh, imprinting. And there's an it's, imp- taking place. it's taking place. And we're now starting to learn, you know, that when a pregnant woman gets to 11 weeks, we can draw a blood test from the mother and determine the genetics of the fetus because mm. there's free fetal DNA that's gone from the placenta into the mother. Mm-hmm. Now, we've also learned that the pregnant mother has, and we don't know quite yet um, how many back generations back, but, but women have DNA from their mother, their grandmother, their great-grandmother, mm. their stem cells, and they travel throughout your body and they go to your baby. So now the question is, what is that doing? And the same with your fetal DNA, which is now going into your bloodstream, and when you have your second baby, they actually share some of this free DNA. And what is it all about? And it's a concept at the moment that we know happens, but we don't understand why it happens. So the deeper we delve into this dark cupboard, the more we're going to understand. And it's something that I try and use to help the patients to understand because a lot of people will feel, well, if it's not my DNA or my partner's DNA, then we should just adopt. Yes. You know, or we should not. Or we should just we not should have just children. We should just not have children. Yeah. So today, the, the patients who are recipients of donor embryos are often patients who've been the root. They've done everything they can. Mm. It hasn't worked for them. And we know that some couples... Um, when they have embryos, those embryos are just genetic garbage. Mm. And I know when I was really young in the field, I had two couples. We tried everything with them. They both got divorced. They both took on new partners. <laughs> and in fact, when their ex-wives were giving birth in the same labor ward, hey? Wow, the same at the same ward, time. At the same time. The only thing they did was they changed the genetic makeup. So... Either there was something within their own psyche, stroke, whatever, where they knew that this was not going to pan out mm. to be a long-standing relationship because, uh, you know, I think there's there are other issues. This is not as simple as just eggs and sperm in a womb, and we know there are subconscious issues. There are – you hear of people who adopt a child and then suddenly fall pregnant, mm. but you don't hear of the millions of others who adopt a child and don't fall pregnant, yes, you know. True. But in, in certain individuals, there, there's got to be other aspects to why they are not feeling pregnant, mm. which are – far more intricate than just worrying about what's the sperm count or am I ovulating and is my pathway normal. Mm. So um, at the end of the day, these are couples who've been the root. They're not just a couple who comes off the street and says, you know what, I just wanted to use embryo donation. Yes, yeah. they've gone through the They've stages. gone the route. Yes. Yeah. What's the average time you work with a patient before they fall pregnant? Usually, and I mean, we see really uh, mm. hardcore infertility, you know, mm. we sort of, which is wrong. Um, our Vita Lab is known as the end of the road unit, you know. Oh. You go here, you go there, you go everywhere, and then if it doesn't work, then you go to Vita Lab or Vita Lab, mm. which is wrong. Um, we should not be seen as the end of the road unit. Mm. But the kind of difficult cases we deal with can be anywhere from three to nine months is your time to pregnancy. Mm. And if you look at any good fertility unit that is seeing a lot of um, stuff where patients have done the route, you're looking at six to nine months' time to pregnancy because mm. there's quite a bit you've got to do to sort out before you can go and do it. Yes. Um, you know, a lot of patients are just seen as, oh, well, here's, here's another IVF. You know, you're mm. a number. And at the end of the day, if you're just being another IVF case, you're going to reinvent the wheel, which is going to be an ongoing negative result, mm. rather than focusing on, 
what your real problems are yes. and how best can we do it in order to have a positive outcome. Okay. Do you measure your success rate? Yeah, every, 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 we do it weekly, mm. monthly and annually. Yeah. Mm. You know, you have to keep a track on what's going on in the lab. Mm. And if you need to troubleshoot, you can't troubleshoot when you're looking at your statistics three months later. Mm. But you will see fluctuations, which are very normal. And I think you see that in any lab, okay. you know, and it also depends on sometimes the very difficult hardcore patients arrive and you get four of them in a row. You know, versus then you get five really easy cases that you know you're going to have a very high pregnancy rate. Mm, so, but, it, but at the end of the day, you use your annual stats to even everything out, mm -hmm. and weekly, weekly looking at fertilization rates, embryo development, not necessarily pregnancy rates weekly, because you will only get your pregnancy rates two weeks after yes. putting the embryos back, or ten days, or twelve days. So that will be on your monthly statistics. But you're constantly on it to make sure that, you know, suddenly if we, we, we do 10 IVF cases today and tomorrow we wake up and none of them have got fertilization, there's something wrong. There's something happening, yeah. right? Okay. So you've got ongoing uh, controls within the laboratory. Mm. And, uh, yeah, you're going to have some really difficult patients that have no fertilization, but there's another six that had beautiful fertilization on the same day, you know. Mm. So we're constantly watching that. It's very okay. important. Yeah. yeah. I mean, another contentious issue is how much it costs. Mm. Why is it so expensive? Okay, so none of our stuff is firstly manufactured locally. Um, secondly, you have to bring the drugs in from overseas, mm. so you dollar-based, euro-based. All our disposable equipment all comes from overseas. Mm. Our culture media comes from overseas, okay. Then, you can offer a really low-grade kind of treatment with one doctor and one embryologist and one mm. incubator and no other sophisticated equipment, all right? And then you can bring your price down. And mm. now, I mean, even when you see here in this country with the odd uh, government unit that you can go and do IVF, I can tell you now, the 30 grand that you're paying at that unit that the government is paying a hell of a lot more for your IVF. You yes, know. they're subsidizing it. They're subsidizing it because you don't have to worry about, well, I just order needles. The government mm. pays for the needles. The government pays for the culture media. Mm. When you put a lab together of the nature of a really good IVF laboratory, you won't get the equipment into that lab that is going to give that patient the best pregnancy rates probably for under 15, 20 million. Mm. Plus, you've got the ongoing costs of all your uh, disposables coming from overseas, you yes. know, which is drugs, media, you name it, catheters, everything. So if you're trying to offer this as a kind of a cheap IVF outcome, mm. being positive, you'll flick it. You will flick it. Mm. But that patient is still being subsidized by the government. Yeah. You know? So unfortunately, it is expensive treatment. It is seen as an elitist treatment. Mm. But we have patients that will do their utmost and they'll want to come to a good unit because they know their outcome is going to be that much better and they'll take two years to save up. Yes. I mean, you I've know? had one or two yeah. people on the show who've, who've talked about having to wait a year in between Correct. treatments because they were saving up. Yeah. So I've seen in the last couple of weeks, Discovery have said that within certain parameters for certain of their plans, they will pay. Have you engaged the medical aids at all to... We have, the, we have, yeah. yeah. 
We have, um, we ourselves as doctors have been involved at a very deep level with them. We've also had IFASA, which is the Infertility Association of South Africa. Um, they've been at the AGMs. They've also pushed it. So it's come from many angles. It's come from patient groups. It's come from IFASA. It's come from us directly as doctors. Mm. Trying to do it in a way where it's controlled. In other words, the unit that you would go and have your fertility treatment is a recognized, established unit that's registered with our body that's called SASRIG mm. and that you are going to get good treatment. You're not just going to go to a one-man show. Mm. Um, so, and again, um, it's very nice of discovery because hopefully other medical aids will follow. We've always had in the background CAMEF, which is the Chartered Accountants Medical yes. Aid, which has always contributed to one IVF attempt per year. Oh, yeah. I did not realize yeah. this. I used to be so, on CAMEF years no, ago. No, CAMEF's an amazing medical aid. Yeah. Now, Discovery has put it forward from 2021 to two groups, the executive and the classic comprehensive. And you find that often the kind of person that's going to afford that kind of uh, facility and, yeah. is someone who's probably going to be able to afford IVF, mm. but it'll at least help them to have more than one attempt. Um, they are offering two attempts. It is age-related. In other words, one attempt if you're a female 40 to 42. After mm. 42, they won't contribute. It does contribute a percentage. It doesn't contribute the whole fee, mm. but it's certainly a very good base for the couple to work from. And yeah, I'm sure we're going to have to. We're going to have admin issues and T's and C's that are going to apply. And uh, yeah, so at the moment we we're trying to get a stronghold or our foothold in in how this is all going to work. But I don't see it as being a massive shaker and mover within our industry mm. um, because the patients that really want to need the yes. treatment are the younger couples who can't afford the more expensive plans. Exactly. You know. Exactly. So there's a lot of work still to do, but it's a massive breakthrough. And uh, it's a, a move in the right direction. Yeah. What amazes me is that it's not seen as a medical problem. I mean, the fact that medical aid is not paying for it, it's, it's, and yet they'll pay for me to get my flu medication, just it boggles the mind. But that's a discussion for another day. But I think it, it highlights the fact that, number one, according to government, infertility is a prescribed minimum benefit mm. that it should be paid for. But when you sign up to medical aids, there's that little writing that you can hardly read. It's about a six-pointer, okay, mm. that says we do not pay for fertility treatment, despite the fact that it's a PMB mm. and you cannot access government facilities um, of the nature mm. that, that we have and to give you pregnancy rates like, like you get from a unit like ourselves. So the other thing is that infertility is a disease. It is. It's it's a disease. It's it's and it's far more prevalent than tonsillitis mm. or any of the other day to day things that patients have. And they did an interesting study in the states that they looked at that if the government had to fund every IVF in the states. Now the states you're talking about three hundred and twenty five million people. You take a third of that being in the reproductive age group, half that for the female. At the end of the day, they found that every family would have to pay one dollar a month extra. Which is okay. Which I think. Would, I think it's. Of course, it is. I think it's more than okay. It's more That's, than yeah. okay. That would cover every IVF through the government mm. for free in America, and so, that would take away so much heartbreak. One hundred percent. So we got to fight for it. We we have to. We need patient groups to lobby. We need people to get out there and say, you know what, it is our right. 
Mm. And we're not talking about giving 90% of the population the opportunity to have IVF. No. You know, only 10% struggle. And of that 10%, maybe no more than 2 or 3% are going to need IVF if they are managed correctly. Mm. Doc, I'm going to start to bring it to a close. What would you say to someone listening to us today who's thinking, you know, maybe I have a problem. Maybe I should go. Maybe I should go see my GP or my gynae. Or if it's a man, you know, maybe I need to, you know, get this checked because we've got a running joke amongst my friends. If you, with a man who's never had a pregnancy scare from any of his girlfriends, there's a problem, there's a potential problem. (laughs) You know, what would you say to that person listening? I think that, uh, you know, infertility itself has become very specialized. And it's the same as if you're an older woman and you have menopause. Mm. The question is, do you take your Mercedes to the Volkswagen garage to be serviced Mm. or do you go to the menopause doctor Mm. who specializes in that? Mm. So if you're talking that I have a fertility problem, you need to be sure that the gynecologist that you're at actually has a special interest in it. Mm. And the problem is you get the wrong advice with no disrespect to my colleagues. Mm. Unfortunately, the patients get given the wrong advice. And you know what? Just go for a consultation and go on a fact-finding mission, but go to a reputable fertility clinic that is registered with SASREG. You can get onto the SASREG website, Mm -hmm. so that's sasreg.co.za, S-A-S-R-E-G, and you can see which clinics in your area are SASREG accredited and do your homework. Mm -hmm. Get on the internet, see what they offer, get an understanding. You're under no obligation treatment if you go and get an opinion from a reproductive medicine specialist Mm. you know this is not for your routine regular gynecologists Mm. they do all the other stuff they deliver babies they'll do your pap smears they'll examine your breasts they'll make sure your ovaries okay your womb looks good but at the end of the day when it comes to needing to get your fertility problem sorted out go to a recognized sasri accredited fertility clinic Mm. and don't let your gynecologist give you an opinion because again as i say a lot of women are scanned at 40 and told that they've got at least another five to ten years which is totally incorrect yeah yeah thank you thank you for joining me this morning thank you to you and your colleagues for the amazing work that you do um you mentioned earlier that it's like being in the hospitality industry and i can tell you from having had first-hand experience of it that we feel it on the other side. You you walk in and you feel like, okay, I'm in good hands. And so we thank you for that. Thank you, Cheryl. Much appreciated. And thank you for hosting me this, this afternoon or this well, morning. This morning is like... Morning? <laughs> oh, yeah, we were in here. Yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> you're used to, And I forgot to ask you this question. Why do we need to come in at like six in the morning for all our assessments? <laughs> so I, I think if you, if you appreciate the, the two issues, the one issue is... Patients want to get to work. True, true. So we do that out of concern for the patients, mm-hmm. not for ourselves, because we still there till five o'clock in the yes. afternoon. Yeah. So the first reason is the patients need to be in and out of there so they can get to work. Yes. Because they also do not want to tell the employers why what they're the, late. Yes. So it's always been like that. It's been a written rule in our work, and that's how we do it. And the second is that. A lot of the monitoring of the patients is not just scan, but there may also be blood tests needed, mm. which can take one or two hours before we get the results. 
So the earlier we start, the sooner we can get those patients out of the way, the mm. sooner the coordinators can have their plans sorted out. So, yeah, and, you know, in our unit, by the time between five doctors and our ultrasonographer and our program coordinators and some people having surgery and some people having IVF, we get through about 200 patients a day. Wow. So to move those numbers and to get them in and out to work on time, we start early. Wow. Okay. I'm blown away. I'm blown away by the work you do. If I had to do life again, who knows? Maybe instead of accounting. <laughs> but thank no, you. I try singing in the shower and my wife tells me to stick to my day job. So maybe you should stick I with accounting. I think I should just like hey? numbers. Yeah. I think, you know, numbers work for me. Numbers work for me. Right? But thank you so much. Thanks, Sean. Okay, thank you. all right. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.